from the great passage, famous from 1 John 4. And I'm going to extend the reading to the end of the chapter. It'll be 1 John 4, 7 through 21. 1 John 4, 7 through 21. The Apostle John writing, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Thanks be to God for his great gift, the word. Now, many of you know we worked in the field of Bible translation in the land of India, and uh, we had one time, an interesting time, trying to figure out how to translate John chapter 1, where it talks about um, the Word became flesh. Word became uh, flesh and dwelt among us. And we were considering what word to use for how it was that the Word, the eternal Word of God, Jesus, uh, became a human. And some of you have maybe heard the word avatar. Avatar has become popular due to a very popular Hollywood movie as well as uh, it's used for video games now and it's a popular cartoon show, I'm told. The original word uh, avatar comes from India and it refers to a manifestation of a deity in bodily form on earth. It is similar to our word incarnation, a god becoming human. In Hindu mythology, the idea of incarnation is very common. 
If you read the Hindu epics, you will hear many tales of gods becoming human. But they are quite different from Jesus' incarnation for several reasons. For one, the Hindu gods are always married. A common question from a Hindu is, does Jesus hate marriage? Because he never married when Hindu gods are all married. Another difference is that the Hindu gods only appear to be human, but are not really capable of suffering. Sort of like the avatars we have in a video game, what our character experiences in the video game is not real and has no lasting effect on our real person. Well, the letter that we have before us was addressed in part to Hellenistic Christians, Greek Christians who had something in common with modern Hindus. They found it difficult to accept the full humanity of Jesus because of their Gnostic and dualistic background. That is, they held that Jesus only seemed or appeared to be human rather than actually being God in the flesh because flesh was evil and God could not assume something evil. You may have heard the word docetism in relation to these Hellenistic Christians from the Greek word dukeo, meaning to seem or to appear. But at the same time John was writing to these Hellenistic Christians, John was also addressing Jewish Christians, those who had professed their commitment to Jesus, but still felt a loyalty to Judaism. And this section of the community found it difficult to accept Jesus as the Messiah. They probably thought of Jesus as less than God. It seems as though this division was not only ethnic, Greek, and Jews, but also doctrinal. Jesus as fully God or fully man may have been the background behind John's continual emphasis in this letter on love and unity. So Paul was trying to correct both a low view of Jesus' divinity, that of some Jews, and a low view of Christ's humanity, that of some Greeks. But he was also trying to help the congregation to get along with and love each other. As Stephen Smalley put it this way, John is offering in this paper a living alternative to a fossilized Judaism and an intellectualized Hellenism. Well, these heresies continued to simmer in the early church, and one response to it was the Nicene Creed, which affirms both the full deity of Christ, but also his full humanity. I think that the more common heresy in America is probably the too low view of Christ, the one that takes him to be less than divine. From Thomas Jefferson's Bible that deleted miraculous events and anything that he deemed contrary to reason, to the more recent Jesus Seminar, whose members voted with colored beads to decide their collective view of the historicity of the deeds and things of Jesus. Western culture has struggled with the full deity of Jesus. By contrast, the more common heresy in India would be the too low view of Christ that he is not really 100% human. For example, some Indian Christians at first objected to inserting groans of pain into a dramatized audio recording of Jesus' crucifixion until I reminded them that Jesus was 100% human. He hungered and thirsted. He grew tired. He wept. He groaned. He suffered. He really died. Well, this is the third passage relating to love in this letter, 1 John. In chapter 2, verses 8 and 10, 
Love is connected to the real light, which is already shining. 1 John 2.10 Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. In chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, John relates love to eternal life. 1 John 3.14 We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. And now here in chapter 4, John relates love to the very nature of God Himself. Here in this passage, we have the fundamental basis for the command to love. The demand of love from the believer is grounded in the nature and being of God Himself as love and the source of all love. I. Howard Marshall commented that verse 7 is open to misunderstanding. One might conclude that anybody who shows love is a child of God, regardless of whether he actually believes in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. This misunderstanding can only arise, however, if we take this verse out of the context of the whole letter. In chapter 3, verse 23, John makes it clear that the true child of God both believes and loves. Ultimately, love is a gift from God and must be returned to Him. Human love, however noble and however highly motivated, falls short if it refuses to include the Father, Son, and Spirit as the supreme objects of its affection. It falls short of the divine pattern, and by itself, it cannot save a person. It cannot be put into the balance to compensate for the sin of rejecting God. Love alone, therefore, is not a sign of being born of God. But while love alone is not sufficient to save us, the next verse shows how it is necessary as the result of knowing God. It is the natural result and overflow of knowing who God is. Knowledge of God as love leads people to love one another. A person cannot come into a real relationship with a loving God without being transformed into a loving person. You, you can probably hear scores of sermon about the love of God, but it is important to take this verse in its context. Even when John writes that God is love, he does not ignore God's other attributes, such as holiness, chapter 1, verse 5, faithfulness and justice, chapter 1, verse 9, and truth, chapter 5, verse 20. In chapter 1, 9, we learn that God is faithful and just. In chapter 5, 20, we learn that God is true. But this verse is slightly different in that it is the noun used rather than the adjective. Note that John doesn't say that God is justice or that God is truth, at least in this letter. But he does say that God is love. Notice it does not say that God is loving or that God loves, although these are true. This statement is a statement unique to God Himself. People can be loving and people can love, but only God alone is love. There is an immense gulf between God and humanity expressed here. Notice also it doesn't say love is God. God is not some abstract concept as Plato and many Eastern religions argued. The God and Father of Jesus Christ is deeply involved in His world. And he has acted in history for the purposes of man's salvation. God's love is personal. And I want to say that also, saying that God is love 
only makes sense when we have a Trinitarian God, a God who exists in three persons. And this has come back to me uh, in a recent sermon I heard, and it's wonderful to think that God's love is eternal because God himself had eternal love among his three persons. And there are other religions which speak of God being only one. We do believe God is one, but not. But those who don't believe God is also three persons, God could not love eternally. But these persons uh, had relationship before the world was created and they shared the love within their own uh, three persons, one God, yet in relationship, a God who can be called love. God's love is personal in that we need not only God the Father, but we need God the Son. There is some, something so special here, something which we all too often take for granted, and that is the manifest love of God that we find in Jesus Christ. What we have here is something the prophets could only hope for, long for, and see shadows of. They believed in the love of God, but it was never revealed to them in the same way as it has been to us. They looked for God's love, but what was hidden to them has now been revealed, shown, made manifest in all its fullness in Jesus. We can know that God loves us because we have seen it in the person of Jesus who was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried, and raised to life on the third day. At the fullness of time, God's eternal love for his own creation was unveiled. In John 3.16, we learn that God gave us his only begotten Son. And here we learn that God sent him into the world. Where did Jesus come from? Hear his own words from John 17.5. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Christ was with his Father. Or John 6.38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. God sent his unique Son from the glory of eternity into the womb of a poor peasant and then into a smelly feeding trough. And why is this? Well, one reason is right here before us. It says that we might live. Left to our own devices, we will merit only death and eternal punishment. Our best efforts at loving others without first believing in God's love are ultimately in vain. Jesus proclaimed boldly in his discourse to his disciples that apart from him they could do nothing. Jesus said in John 15:6, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Friends, apart from God sending his only begotten Son into the world, we would die. But here is the good news. God did send his Son that we might live. Now, some people were upset when the NIV changed the word propitiation to atoning sacrifice. Uh, this is in uh, verse 10. Now, frankly, I think that if anyone on the street could give you a definition for propitiation or atonement, I would be more than impressed. 
However, what the people are upset about is the small difference in meaning between atonement and propitiation. The word propitiation puts a stronger emphasis on appeasing the wrath of a deity. In pagan cultures, people would sacrifice animals and even their own children in order to appease the wrath of the supposed gods that ruled over them. If they wanted to have good crops, protection from earthquakes, tornadoes, and the like, they would offer these blood sacrifices to gain the favor of the deity. I'll never forget getting a tour of a village in Bangladesh where we saw the remains of a bloody animal in front of a temple to a Hindu goddess. Even those without God's revelation assume there is some connection between their ethical behavior and their material and even eternal prosperity. So to prevent the gods from becoming angry and destroying them because of their sins, propitiation is made. Now, interestingly, this Greek word is used only here and in chapter 2, verse 2, in the entire New Testament. However, it can be found in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And there it refers to the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 25.9. And in 1 Chronicles 28.11, it refers to the mercy seat, whereon all the blood of the animals was spilled to atone for sin. That mercy seat that was on the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and later the temple. This is the same word for the propitiation, for the atonement. And in Ezekiel 44.27, it refers to a sin offering. And on that day that a priest goes into the holy place, into the inner court, to minister in the holy place, he shall offer his sin offering, declares the Lord God. And one final passage where this Greek word appears is in Psalm 133 and 4 in the Greek translation, which, we, which says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. With, we could translate it, with you there is a sin offering or with you there is propitiation. Fortunately for us, we no longer need to offer animals to propitiate God's wrath against our sin. There was a once-for-all sacrifice when Jesus died on that Roman instrument of torture. The cross propitiates atones, makes right and offers forgiveness from God's anger against all of our wickedness and evil. Now, verse 11 is the ethical command that stems from the theology. Knowing that God loves you and me is important, but it must lead us to the next step, which is to mirror that love. You remember Jesus' parable about the unmerciful servant? who was forgiven that immense debt, but went out and put his debtor into prison for a few dollars. Well, how many times do you and I do this? When it comes to other people's treatment of us, we are all too aware of the principles of justice. You know, our children, they know exactly what I'm talking about here. You know, kids, when you see your brother or sister has a bigger ice cream cone than you, you demand justice. It's not fair. Johnny got a bigger cone. Or a better example, why isn't Susie being punished for talking back? You grounded me for a week. We are all together too ready to conveniently forget that we could use opportunities of injustice 
to share with our neighbor about the mercy of God in Christ. Do I ever consider being happy that my brother got such a big ice cream cone, even when he might not have deserved it? Or thanking God how many times my parents did not punish me when I deserved it? Uh, Earlier this week, I heard the story from a member of Southwest Harbor Congregational Church of how when she fell ill during a missions trip, someone flew from another continent to be with her until she recovered, making sure she got the needed medical care that was required. She was so touched by this. And I think the reason is because this saint who flew all the way down to Ecuador was a tangible, visible expression of the love of God. As this chapter reminds us, we can't see God, but sometimes we catch a glimpse of the love of God in a fellow believer. As verse 12 says, No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. His love is made complete in us. Now, if you ask me why God chose to perfect his love in fragile, selfish, unforgiving creatures like myself, I would tell you that he's crazy. But God's ways are higher than our ways. He has chosen to use people like you and me as a mirror for his Great love. The love of God disclosed by Jesus indwells the church and creates the basis for a mutual and ongoing relationship of love between the Godhead and the Christian. The uh, Congregationalists, many moons ago of New England, held to the Savoy Declaration. Chapter 27 there talks about the way that our Union with God through Christ results in this special and unique love we ought to have for each other. It says this, All saints that are united to Jesus Christ their head by His Spirit and faith, although they are not made thereby one person with Him, have fellowship in His graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory, and being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces, and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as to do conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and outward man. In short, union with Jesus leads to communion with fellow believers and Jesus. And I saw a beautiful demonstration of that this morning, listening to the vows, both from the new members of your church and from the congregation receiving them. What a fantastic uh, expression exactly of this uh, truth that love for one another stems from our love from God. We have a special duty to care for our fellow believers. And the implication is that the invisible God living inside us is made visible in this kind of service to one another. Well, Verse 13 goes on to tell us that we live in God and God in us. And this reminds us of a profound truth to share with any Hindu who thinks Jesus had a low view of marriage. In fact, Jesus does take for himself a bride, and that is us, the church. This is what sometimes is called the mystical union. That is the union between the Godhead and the church. God lives in the church, and the church lives in God. A few years ago, we... We're privileged to attend a Christian Indian engagement ceremony where we listened 
to that beautiful passage from Ephesians 5 about Christ being the church's spouse. Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. But we need to ask how we come to be part of this mystical union. Verse 13 says that it comes by His Spirit. Before Jesus left, He told His disciples that it was better that He leave because unless He departed, they could not have the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit could only be poured out upon the church after Jesus was dead, raised, and ascended into heaven. The disciples only had Jesus when Jesus was present with them physically. But you and I have the advantage of having Jesus with us at all times because of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And verse 15 tells us the second way this mystical union occurs. It says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. As we confess our faith that Jesus shares the same attributes as God the Father, we can have confidence that we are in God and He is in us. I think this verse also reminds us that the mystical union is a two-way street. There's a lot of emphasis in evangelicalism about inviting Christ into your heart. But we not only invite Christ into our hearts, we are invited into Christ's heart. And John goes on to tell us that as we are in this mystical union, as we know God's love and share it with each other, we can also have confidence that we will not receive the judgment that we deserve, that of eternal punishment. Even as Christ did not fear death, we also may have hope in the resurrection. Though we deserve punishment, we can trust in that sin offering, that mercy seat, that perfect atoning sacrifice, that propitiation for sin, even our Lord Jesus. Perfect love casts out fear. God is perfect loved and casts out any fear of the judgment to come so long as we are trusting in Jesus. But John again returns and concludes with the necessary response to this love. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Now, when I was a little guy, I remember one of my brothers using this verse against me on those interminably long trips in the car when we were anything but models of God's perfect love. I would get to the point where I would tell my brother flat out that I hated him, to which he responded, then you also hate God because you can't love God and hate me at the same time. Facing defeat by the weight of this theological truth, I would concede, fine, then I like you. Finishing the rest of my sentence in, the ha- in my head, hardly at all. <laughs> and trying to convince myself that I could like God a little more. But despite my brother's taunting, he did realize a certain truth, that the way we can show love to God is by loving our brothers and sisters. Who exactly are our brothers and sisters? 
There is an Old Testament love story that illustrates, illustrates the radical implications of the mystical union between God and the church and the communion of the church within itself. You remember the story of Ruth. Ruth was a foreigner, a Moabite by birth. She also suffered the disgrace of being childless and a widow. But she chose the God of Israel to be her God and in faith went with her mother-in-law Naomi to Bethlehem. Boaz took a foreigner and a widow as his wife. In doing so, he foreshadowed the outlandish and radical act that Jesus did in inviting Gentiles into the chosen people of God. I imagine most of us, if not all of us today here, are Gentiles. You remember that the churches that John wrote to had both Jews and Gentiles. When John writes to the church that whoever loves God must also love his brother, the implication was that Jew must love Gentile believer and Gentile must love Jewish believer. The mystical union that exists between God in the church means that we who trust in, God, in Jesus' sacrifice are also united to other believers from diverse times and cultures. We have a bond with the old covenant people of God, the Jews. We also have a bond with believers from around the world in places such as Uganda, Bihar, India, and others. God's love breaks down the barriers of time, race, and class. As missionaries supported and prayed for by Southwest Harbor Congregational Church, we have seen the love of God in you. Thank you. And through us, Lord willing, you have sent a visible picture of God's love to the lands of India and Bangladesh. May you continue on in your love for God and for your brothers and sisters here and around the world. Amen.